0: Uh, Well, thank you, Tim, and and thank you for inviting me here. It's a a privilege to be here. I was trying to recollect my history. I think this was the first lecture theatre I came into when I started my Oxford chemistry degree. Um, Lots of things haven't changed, like the slightly dubious notice about not wearing stiletto heels in the department. (laughs) I didn't then, and I don't now, so that's all right. Uh, And a rather larger number of elements on the board in the corner than when I was here 30 years ago which uh, I don't know what they are, and they have no use in fireworks, I'm sure. Um, so a little, I've got, what I'm going to do, uh, with the absence of demonstrations but with video, is to show you a little bit about the chemistry of fireworks, a little bit about the other scientist, scientific aspects of fireworks, how we turn the chemistry into fireworks themselves, and then how we turn those fireworks into displays. Just a little bit of background, I'm I'm a chemist, I'm an organic chemist, which I know is like saying the wrong thing in this department, Uh, and I was at Keeble, and the reason I was at Keeble was because my chemistry master said, it's the nearest one to the labs and you can get up latest in the morning to go to lectures, (laughs) which seems like as good a reason as any. Um, I worked for a company called Kimbolton Fireworks in the UK for around about 10 years, 15 years in all. Uh, They're the last manufacturer of display fireworks in the UK, nearly all fireworks that we've seen displays now come either from the rest of Europe or from the Far East. My grandfather worked for Brock's fireworks in the early 1900s and that's how I got into firework displays and rather sadly, he had the dubious distinction of firing a show on the Thames a very long time ago with very large rockets where they managed actually to kill somebody on the other side of the Thames by dropping a rocket stick on them. Now, in today's health and safety culture, you can imagine that everything that we do is extraordinarily highly regulated and they wouldn't get away with that sort of thing anymore. And I've been involved with displays since about 69, which if you can work it out or you see my uh, CV, was I wasn't very old at all, and my memories are cowering in the back of a van, handing out fireworks to the people who were firing them live during the display. And obviously things have changed dramatically nearly every show that's fired now is computer-controlled. The precision uh, and the effects have changed very, very significantly and I'll show you some of those as we go through. I set up an explosives consultancy in 1998 and I'm now, as Tim said, I'm a consultant very uh, fortunately. I have a grand title of the pyrotechnic consultant to the Olympic Games, which is a lot grander than it sounds, and I've been all over the world in some extraordinary places on rooftops and on structures Um, acting really is the honest broker between the production company for the display and the the contractor who is actually sourcing the fireworks and firing the display. And those two sets of people don't often agree on what they'd like to see out at the end of it. I'll show you some of the shows at the end. Um, I'm also an expert witness, I'm chairman of various groups, very boring, you can all read that, but I have to say at all good bookshops my book is available. So if you want to go away from here and purchase a copy I should be very grateful. So, uh, fireworks. Well, there are actually lots of really good science here. Um, Obviously, we're going to concentrate today on the chemistry, uh, but there's also physics, the light production, quantum effects, uh, and also the ballistics. What goes up will come back down again. And part of my job is to work out where it comes back down again. So that involves working out how it flies through the air and then what the wind does to it once it's burst. (coughs) Environmental chemistry is obviously a, a big topic, and... Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about whether these things are uh, safe to use for both firers and the audience and also for the environment. And just to give you a clue, um, for the London New Year's Eve show that we do on the Thames, which is only an 11-minute show that attracts around about 400,000 people, the atmospheric production of sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, nitrogen oxides in the atmosphere is about 1 500th of that produced by the vehicles used to get people there. (laughs) Now, I think that's a good deal. But there are the naysayers in this world who said, if you didn't do it at all, we wouldn't have the 501s worth. Uh, That's not what real life's like. And we've got to enjoy ourselves. And fireworks are about enjoying uh, both the science, and after this, I'm sure Tim will bore his friends to death with how it all works, as you may. Uh, People won't stand next to me at firework displays anymore because, uh, yes, I either stand there and and say the most ridiculous things or I just tut gently when I don't (laughs) like what I see. Um, Meteorology, because we we live in this country where the biggest set of firework displays in the the year are in November, the worst time of year to go and fire firework displays. The only saving grace is that they're at 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night and not 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night which they would be if they were in the middle of the summer. And therefore, you can get home at a decent hour because probably you're going to go off the next day and fire a whole new set of shows. And then at the bottom there, as everything, risk management. It's a very uh, potentially hazardous operation, uh, hazardous occupation, and hazardous to those people who are watching. So an awful lot of what we do now is the risk management of the shows. And I'll show you some of that when we get to one of the big shows we've been involved in, which was the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. Uh, but I have to give you a few buts here. Fireworks are explosive. Uh, the exposed industry is the second most regulated industry in the UK, apart from the uh, nuclear industry, which is probably about right. Uh, but it's everything that you do is highly regulated. The buildings on the site have limits on the quantity and types of explosives And the number of people who can be in that building and the distance away from other buildings, roads, uh, inhabited buildings, churches, docks, you name it, there is a distance written in a table that says you have to be this far away from it. It's also illegal to manufacture or break down fireworks or any other explosives without a license from HSE. So, uh, don't try this at home is what's written on the bottom of there. Uh, I'm sure you won't. On the other hand... A lot of you, I think, are chemists, and a lot of you are probably chemists because of experimenting on the kitchen table and making smells and bangs and whistles, which is how I got interested in chemistry. So I'm not going to stop you completely. But a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. There are mixtures of chemicals which produce uh, um, compositions which are extremely sensitive. In the UK, we have to split factories into two halves, ones that deal with uh, sulphur chemistry and ones that deal with perchlorate or chlorate chemistry, because chlorates and sulphur together would produce a very sensitive mix, which would even go off under your foot from the friction. So no tools may move from one side of the factory to the other, no work coats, no anything may move from one side of the factory to the other. So what I'm going to talk about, a little bit about precautions, and a little bit just to show you how powerful these things can be. Then as I say, the chemistry and physics of fireworks compositions, turning those compositions into real fireworks, and then turning those fireworks into displays. The precautions, well, these things are sensitive. They are explosive. They're designed to produce a lot of energy over a relatively small period of time. Actually, for fireworks, a relatively long period of time compared to other explosives. Otherwise, the fireworks you see in the sky would hardly be worth looking at because they'd be over in a flash. Um, But they are sensitive. They don't take much initiation to make them work. And that initiation could be through friction, impact, electrostatics, uh, obviously flame or heat. Potassium, chlorate and sulphur is actually an illegal mixture in the UK, uh, but doesn't stop people trying to make mixtures containing those two components. And anything with metal powders in is always going to be a potential problem. Metal powders are very often pyrophoric. They catch light in air. So when you mix them with oxidants and then you deliberately apply energy to them, the energy you get back out is very great and they can produce very uh, sensitive mixtures. Also, a lot of the things we deal with are toxic. Let alone the explosives effect, they can be toxic. And of course, almost every firework that we produce is going to produce heat. So that can affect other things. And then there are the explosives effects. What we're trying to achieve, but if uncontrolled in a small scale, working on a bench uh, or in a manufacturing facility, can be quite devastating. On a large scale, in transport or in storage, then the results can be dramatic indeed. And I'll show you a couple of pictures. (coughs) Just to illustrate sensitivity, these are two... Uh, pyrotechnic compositions reacting with water. Uh, the first is, I have to show you, this is any of these videos. If, if it's a naked hand, it's probably okay. If it's a highly gloved hand, it's obviously a bit more sensitive. Uh, so, ammonium nitrate, zinc, stoichiometric amount of water, and finger. Well that was, you know, one drop of water, a sort of decent amount of water over a long period of time reactions are occurring, relatively long period of time, generating heat and eventually enough heat to cause ignition of the composition. And that that is a problem, some compositions are very water sensitive, even in the articles that we produce, but this one is even more water sensitive. silver nitrate and magnesium. Now instead of one drop of liquid water just a tiny amount of uh, water droplets in the air. Now the, the amount of composition you can just see in the bottom of that container it's very small indeed, much less than our pile of composition last time and the amount of water we're going to add is very small indeed This this is a scare slide, actually, and I apologise for it, but we're dealing with kilos and kilos of composition. But 100 grams of black powder would produce a fireball that would totally engulf somebody who was working on it. When you're dealing with kilos and kilos and kilos, you can imagine the effects are much, much more. And black powder is a a powerful gas producer. That's why we use it. Um, So this is a very old bit of video... Um, You can probably tell from the style of the moustaches of the guys who are firing it. Um, And we're going to put a little tiny amount of black powder between two anvils. And the power of the gas generation will lift one of the anvils into the air. So here we go. That's about 20 grams of black powder with a fuse. Now to make it totally safe, look, we'll just put a couple of bits of cardboard on it because obviously that's going to (laughs) make... A really big difference, and then lower, another anvil on top, carefully positioned if you look that if it goes wrong well at least it will be quick. <laughs> this is in the States, I, I should uh, point out. So here we go, this is 20 grams of black powder. now there's hardly any confinement there between those two anvils that's just gas generation when you put black powder into a tube in order to project a shell or into a rocket motor to be able to take that uh, uh, rocket into the air then obviously you are producing even more power than that and I just want to show you two two very swift videos they are swift this is when it goes wrong completely there was a very bad accident in Holland at Enschede, which killed 26 people and this was the research that was done post that These are three-inch shells in a 20-foot container, Um, five, five and a bit tons of it. Now, it may seem a bit odd, but actually we regard that as quite a low-order event. It it took place over a relatively long period of time with a lot of gas and heat production, but it wasn't really an explosive event. You may have noticed the container moved a bit just as they started. Uh, But this one... Well, these are waterfalls. This is probably one of the most innocuous fireworks we have. It's the thing that they use at Edinburgh to uh, drop a water curtain off off the castle. so th- those are just fireworks actually what we call the TNT equivalence, that's how powerful that was in relation to the equivalent quantity of TNT is significantly greater than one so the things that you are buying and using and that we're using have the potential when they go wrong to go wrong very very spectacularly Okay, so uh, moving on, better, nicer things now. Uh, A little bit of basic chemistry and physics. We'll look at simple compositions and black powder, a little bit about colour compositions, uh, sparks, glitters and strobes, and noise producers, and then I'll show you how we turn those into fireworks. So, in essence, all of the chemistry of uh, pyrotechnic production, and that's fireworks, all fireworks are pyrotechnics, but not all pyrotechnics are fireworks, uh, is that equation. An oxidant and a fuel producing products and heat. And the point being that the oxidants are not atmospheric oxygen like if you lit a match. They're chemical components in the mixture. Uh, In most cases so much so that you could burn these compositions underwater. There is enough oxygen being produced by the components of the mixture. So typical oxidants, potassium nitrate, perchlorate or barium nitrate, uh, very common in, in fireworks. The three at the bottom there are much less used, although they have... Uh, real uses, they produce either very sensitive compounds, uh, sensitive compositions, or compositions that uh, absorb moisture from the air and go off. Um, So potassium nitrate perchlorate or barium nitrate, the common oxidants, and the common fuels, sulphur and charcoal, as in black powder, Uh, and then metals magnesium and aluminium, which are both acting as fuels and very often as producing uh, light, white light. Uh, or more typically nowadays, an aluminium-magnesium alloy called magnesium. Uh, and, and in recent years, titanium has become actually quite interesting um, for us, only because it's become available because it's used in so many other industries. Titanium swarf and titanium powder has become available at a price that we can afford to put into fireworks. And you've got to remember that everything that we produce is actually relatively cheap. You know, we're, when I left Kimbolton in, in, uh, in sorry in '98 we were making a 5-inch round shell in the UK for about £12. But we could buy one and have it shipped all the way from China for 50 pence. So, the the big difference. That's not to say we wouldn't want to use some of ours, but we want to use them selectively, everything in its place. And then sometimes wood meal or resins, resins do a sort of double duty in that they, they bind the composition together, but they're actually there to slow down the chemical reaction and make the burning of a star lasts longer in the air. As I said, if it's all over in an instant, it's not a very good firework. And then a whole load of other components which we'll touch on as we go through, either for colour production, spark production, or for mechanical reasons in the production phase. So what are the products? Well, there's gases in the solids. Uh, Gases will give us propulsion, like black powder. Uh, Chemical species in the flame to give us colours. A molten slag for propagation of the flame throughout the mixture or from lighting one part of the firework to another. Uh, solid and liquid chemical byproducts like uh, sulfides and carbonates produced from the burning surface, uh, which are going to delay the effect that we want, and I'll show you some of that in a bit. And then solid combustion products like long duration sparks, aluminium or iron oxidizing to the oxide and incandescing as they, as they move through the air. So what do we want the heat for? Well, heat and gas is good because it gives us more power. Uh, noise production, so whistles or screeches or hummers all rely on gas production in a little tube a bit like an organ pipe. And I'll show you some of that in a moment. Uh, ignition of the, of the other materials there to produce the effects that we want. So onto on to some decent pyrotechnic chemistry. Well, black powder has been around forever. Uh, that's the basic mix, 75 to 15 to 10 It hasn't changed very much over hundreds and hundreds of years. But with all compositions, the burn speed of the resulting composition depends on all of these factors, how it's made. So, for instance, just mixing potassium nitrate and sulfur and charcoal together, and I'll show you some video in a second, uh, doesn't produce a very good explosive. It burns slowly, produces lots of solid byproducts, whereas you saw in the anvil lifting experiment, what we actually want to do is to produce gas in a very short period of time the intimacy of the mixture, the particle size and shape of the components, uh, and the compaction or granulation of the resulting composition. I'm afraid standing in this building, it's all a little bit like alchemy, really. It's not really <laughs> the sort of inorganic chemistry that we're seeing on the, outs- on the posters on the outside. Um, so this is it's, I'm afraid this is a bit of old video. Um, I point that out because I used to have hair and it used to be black. And it's, uh, in the video, it's like that, but not... Sadly, with me anymore. <laughs> with the pilots, nitrate, sulfur, and charcoal. If you mix them together, you end up with a power, which you can still see the white, yellow and black threads. Now if you burn that, what happens is it burns relatively slowly. This is really quite useful for the basis of all the fiber compositions where you want something to burn slowly enough that you can see it in but too quickly it will over and you it the, gas, the sparrow. So lots of sparks being produced, slow burning, lots of gas, lots of smoke. If you take that same chemical composition, you grind the potassium nitrate and the charcoal together and the sulfur, grind it over many hours, as it indicates, break it up, you end up with a powder, the consistency of coarse granulated sugar. Now when we burn that, the fire can travel both through the blankets between the nets, and the whole reaction is very much more quick this sort of thing is used for making the lifting challenges of fireworks when you want lots of gas in a short space of time um, so that was exactly the same chemistry but different physics if you like but the precedent for a we get is an fountain that little fountain is about that size same so, transition. as in tube but it only burns on the now, if I could have lit that here, that would have been about that high, and it was a tube smaller than my little finger. Um, and that's the size of fountain that we use in the big display. So you can imagine the effect is is rather bigger. Um, now, if we start confining it, um, I'm afraid the first bit of video is actually more or less the same as that last demonstration, but. Uh, there's a little fountain again but if we start putting it into a tube it burns very differently so there's the fountain if we seal both ends of the tube the gas has got nowhere to go and it goes bang okay? so uh, we're using the gas generation and then the thickness of the walls of the tube to produce the effect that we want well actually that sort of chemistry is pretty dull uh, gold sort of effects we could add metal powders to them and we'll see that in a second to produce sparky effects but the colours have only really been around since the early 1900s in any, in any great extent. The colour agent of the composition, what we add to the composition, is not the same as the species in the flame. We're still using that basic chemical reaction, oxidant and fuel gives products and heat, but the product in the flame and the heat being given to that, those products in the flame is exciting them electronically and then they relax and produce coloured light. And it's actually metal halogen species generally in the flame that we're interested in not not like adding copper chloride to a composition and ending up with copper chloride in the flame but a copper chlorine species and probably quite a complex species Um, so uh, there's a very old show lovely old picture but that was all gold and silver if you did a show now that was just gold and silver everybody would be very very bored very quickly not least the sponsors who like you to reproduce their, sh- their corporate colors in fireworks. <laughs> uh, sadly, most of them, or many of them nowadays are black, and you have to go through a big process of telling them black is not a great firework color. <laughs> um, so we add metal salts to the, to the c- composition. So the colors there are the colors that are produced. Um, interestingly, sodium aluminium fluoride, which is the an ore for, alu- or for aluminium cryolite, is used because it's non-hydroscopic. Many sodium salts are hydroscopic and absorbing moisture from the air in a fibre composition is not a great idea. And then if the chemistry is right, and a lot of effort's been put into this to ensure that you can mix different coloured compositions to get all the different possible colour combinations, but you has to be compatible chemistry because what you don't want is to produce something that's sensitive. Now, uh, we've done a bit of chemistry 101, as the Americans would say. This is, this is uh, quantum physics 101. We're taking molecules in the flame, adding heat, which excites the electronic levels of the molecule, and then that relaxes to give us the light. And what we're interested in is that little tiny bit of the electronic spectrum. Well, we are for fireworks because we want to see the effect that we're producing. But actually, both in the ultraviolet and the infrared, there's quite a lot of interesting work going on of uh, pyrotechnic compositions for battlefield illumination. So non-visible light, but dark light for battlefield illumination. So as I say, the species is is an MX species, where X is chlorine or hydroxy generally, and it's probably a dimer or even a tetramer. Uh, But as I say, it's a very cheap uh, part of science, and nobody has the money to go away and find out exactly what's going on, and uh, I'm not sure it would help us a lot anyway, because we're at the alchemy end rather than the pure science end. But what we do is to add polychlorinated species like PVC or saran, saran is cling film, Uh, to add chlorine to the flame, to get more chlorine species in the flame to to enhance the uh, colour production or the purity of the colour production. What it can unfortunately do is sometimes reduce the actual amount of light produced. So here's a bit of real chemistry for you. Uh, Strontium carbonate, which would be the agent added to a composition to produce red light, goes through all of those, and it's only that strontium-chlorine-excited species which is producing the red light we're interested in. Every other species there is producing light in, perhaps in another part of the spectrum. And the effect of that is to reduce the purity of the red that we want to get out. So here's a little bit of uh, burning of colour compositions. So the first one's white, white. Um, actually that's based on an antimony sulphide, it's, it's not following the normal trend, but it's, it's a reasonable white light production without too many sparks. The next one is a really good yellow which is based on cryolite and that's producing sodium atoms in the flame unlike the sodium uh, uh, metal chlorine species which produces the familiar yellow light we see in streetlights and everything else. Then green from barium salts, barium carbonate in this case and a good red, strontium carbonate and then lastly the ones that you have to look for when you go and see a firework display and that's the blue starts off being quite a good blue but actually at the edges of the flame it goes a bit yellow there's other things burning in there Uh, and the violet which is a blue composition with uh, copper oxide in with some additional uh, strontium carbonate and it doesn't look great on there it looks better in the air. So look for good blues when you go and see a firework display good blues are a sign of a really good uh, pyrotechnic chemist who's doing doing the work. Blue is very difficult because of this. This is called the chromaticity diagram. It's a representation of the colours of the spectrum and the points refer to light production from different chemical species. And the problem with copper is that it's producing a nice blue down here, but it's also producing a green from the copper hydroxy species. And mixing a green and a a violety blue produces a, a reasonable blue. But if there's more green in there, we start heading away from the blues into the pale whites, into the yellows. So you can actually end up with a copper uh, pyrotechnic composition, which is hardly blue at all. Next set of the delayed reactions, well, this is sparks, so burning of metal powders in the composition to give us normal gold or silver sparks. And we can increase the duration actually by adding sulphides and carbonates to the composition, which sort of coat the material as it's being thrown off the burning surface. The glitters is the next step on there where we're actually we're not producing a spark from the burning surface but a delayed reaction and then a flash of light. And I'll show you that in a second. Strobes is the ultimate of this where we're getting an oscillating reaction. They're probably all manifestations of similar chemistry. So there's the glitter. What we're interested in is a burning surface of a composition and very low light production and then flash, uh, little flashes away from the burning surface. And actually again this has application in military use for things like decoy flares, because when you fire a decoy flare off the back of an aircraft in order for the missiles to go to that and not to the aircraft, you want it to be as far away from the aircraft as possible and not producing any uh, electromagnetic radiation between where it's lit and where it produces the flash. So it's it's a sort of wrong way around now, it's chemistry from fireworks which is driving the military chemistry. So there's a uh, still of some glitter. There's the burning surface. This is a very low light production. And then the flash. And that's the strobe. Uh, these are seven strobe shells producing a light that's flashing on and off as it falls to the ground. Roughly equal intensity and roughly equal in frequency. And what's going on here? Well, on the burning surface of the composition, we've got a nitrate, sulfur and charcoal, a sort of black powder type mix, which is producing disulfides uh, which oxidise in air in the low-light production phase to give us sulphides and sulphates. And then we know that at high temperatures, sulphates react with aluminium, or it may be aluminium sulphide, or it may be aluminium carbide. a bit of um, dispute about that. To produce a lot of light and aluminium oxide. (coughs) So here's a few compositions. These are just simply... The first one is adding titanium to the mixture... Very white light production. Sparks. And the second one is crackle, where we've added bismuth salts. And you actually get delayed reactions with the little bangs. And that manifests itself, if you see it in a firework, as a sort of a goldy trail, little bangs all the way up as it goes along. Um, very popular 20 years ago and seems to be used in every firework you can find, and it's got boring now, so we've got to find something else. <coughs> and then glitter, well the glitter is this one where it's it having a low light production and then burning away uh, from the surface to produce little flashes of light. This is in slow motion, this next bit, and you'll see things being thrown off which then flash, with nice little smoke rings associated with them. Uh, but that's the one that is producing its effect away from the burning surface. And then the strobe, uh, it's not too dark in here but the strobe can be quite sort of disturbing so um, it is an oscillating reaction. This is homogeneous chemistry, this is not layers of different chemistry, this is a tube filled with one composition that is managing managing to burn in this oscillating way. And I have to say, we don't really understand entirely what's going on. (laughs) uh, And it was found serendipitously. Um, There's a Japanese researcher, sadly now dead. He was 90-something when he died, so the pyrotechnic chemistry can't be that bad for you. Uh, But he swears he was staring at that through a microscope and seeing hot spots develop and a flash reaction. Well, Just looking at that, you wouldn't have much eyesight left afterwards. Staring staring through a microscope at it, I'm amazed he got to 92. So it's it's an odd bit of chemistry because it is producing this oscillating effect. And again, it's a firework composition which has found military effect. Um, One on its own is moderately disturbing. Two or three of them together is very disturbing. And they're now used as distraction devices for... Uh, resolving sieges and things where they throw a device into a building and you get these flashes going off very very bright almost producing beats of light uh, this is the same, same one and I just want to get to the end of this because it's got a slow motion bit of the same, same effect um, and you can see it's not absolutely regular and the amount of light being produced isn't absolutely the same but as I say it is homogeneous all the way through um, I think that will do other effects, well, those are the light effects. The noise effects are whistles and screeches, where we're producing gas in a tube, a bit like an organ pipe. Hummers, where there is gas being produced in a tube which tumbles in the air and produces a humming sound. And then, as we saw with the black powder, if you block all the holes up in the tube, what you're going to end up with is a bang. So here's a little whistle. This is a, a little tiny amount of composition. You'll see it. And the pitch of the whistle is basically dictated by the length of the tube above the burning surface. It's a bit like blowing over a a bottle with water in it, where you get that um, resonating effect. So here's a tiny bit of composition at the top. Very small. Potassium uh, perchlorate and potassium benzoate normally. Um, And as I said earlier, it's it's a bit trickier, so we'll put a glove on. And then we can change the pitch of the whistle by changing the length of the, bu- of the tube above the burning surface. Now, a very enterprising set of Americans did this. Having, having discovered how it works. Today we're doing a final test of the system going to computer and see how we We haven't got video of the whole thing, unfortunately, because obviously this is only a test. The real one would have been even better, but it's still quite impressive. I I think that's brilliant. Now, the Japanese have taken that to another level in which they're producing these things in the air from a burst where you can get a very short tune from different pitch whistles with different delay times to them. I'll just shove this bit of video in. This is a bit of match. We have to connect all these things together. In that last case, there was a piece of uh, what we call pipe match running along each of those tubes uh, which was causing them to fire in sequence. Nowadays, you'd probably use electrics rather than that. But the problem with electrics firing is, for that little show there, you'd have run out half a mile of wire connected to everything. And half a, half a mile of wire costs you a lot of money. And would you rather see more fireworks or know that it was fired electrically? Anyway, this is, this is Pipe Match, putting a piece of black powder-covered uh, cotton inside a tube. And it burns extremely quickly. Oh, it does burn extremely quickly. <laughs> So just slow it down, (laughs) and you still just about see it go round, but for our purposes that's essentially instantaneous. We can light lots of things together Uh, instantaneously if we want to introduce delays what we do is have those little things like those little fountains you saw that have very precise times which can introduce time delays between each firework element so that was that was the basic chemistry now let's turn that chemistry into fireworks well there's two basic types of fireworks the very simple ones where we've just pressed composition into a tube and then the more complicated ones where we're propelling something into the air to produce stars and the simplest of the lot is the fountain. You've seen the little fountain. and You've seen, seen that as a display-type fountain. Uh, this is a rather odd one. This is based not on standard chemistry but on nitrocellulose. And it's one of the few fireworks that we have used indoors now But actually you can pass your hand through the flame. It's burning it relatively coolly. So uh, used in stage effects rather than outdoor firework displays. The uh, ja- Japanese go rather bigger than even that <laughs> and carry these things around and there's some wonderful video of them with bicycles with these things on their back if you want to go and look on YouTube. <laughs> and in the uh, sort of eight, late 1800s the, the art was to produce these things called machines which were stuffed full of these fireworks and you'd promenade, promenade around in the afternoon seeing them, you'd all go away and then they'd blow them up later on at night but you'd seen how they'd been set up. It's sad that we can't possibly afford to do the same thing today. The more interesting ones are based on stars, and stars can either be cylindrical or spherical. A colour-changing star like this has a core with a layer of composition, uh, what we call a changing relay, which is a low-light production composition, and then another colour to get a star that changes colour in the sky. So the simplest thing you can do with them is just to shove them into a little tube uh, to produce something like that, which is a mine. That's a stage mine and would easily reach the top of the ceiling here. And again, fired electrically, we can do all sorts of interesting things, chases, uh, effects off the sides of the buildings, all sorts of things. And it produces the stars and the light the moment the current hits it. So really good for paramusical displays when you want the effect to occur now. You don't want the effect to occur two and a half, three and a half seconds later in the sky. It's also the sort of thing you see on uh, fired-off buildings. Or it could be filled with other units like whistles. So there's uh, a front of these mines being fired together. Uh, The next step up are Roman candles. So there's a typical battery of Roman candles that we'd have, uh, but we wouldn't fire just one of those. You'd fire perhaps nine of those across the frontage uh, to produce patterns like this at the bottom of the screen. So you're giving a continuity in a lower level effect while you're picking out bits of the music or, or crescendos in the display with shells over the top of it. The next one up are rockets. Not actually used used all that much in professional displays, uh, partly because of my grandfather's reason that the stick was going to come back down again, Uh, but also because they're not so predictable in flight. If the wind were travelling from you to me, most fireworks would end up down that way, which is what the desired effect is. We want the debris to travel away from the audience. But rockets actually track... Into the wind because of the stick. So they're, they're less predictable and obviously have the debris problems. Of course, uh, the Americans go one better. <laughs> and now we move on to the, 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 the mainstay of most shows, and that's the shells. And shells are fired out of a mortar like an artillery shell. Um, so that's the mortar, very often fiberboard, uh, sometimes GRP, sometimes high density polyethylene rarely now metal because when they go wrong you get bits of metal flying around but that's a typical shell with a cone at the bottom with black powder in it which is going to propel it into the air Uh, you can see that there and then inside the shell a fuse which has a precise delay time to to cause it to burst in the air and then it's fired by lowering into the mortar and, and fired but of course that's not a very big shell that's a four inch shell Those are 6-inch shells, which are sort of standard thing we would use in the UK for the big shows. And that one (laughs) is a 12-inch shell. It's not a real one, you'll be glad to hear. Uh, But it was a dummy made for testing the packaging that we transport them in. And I'm just going to pass that around. You feel the weight of that. That's going to 1,000 feet in the air. So uh, quite a power to get it up there. And of course our friends uh, go bigger, oh sorry, there's a cylinder shell which is the same sort of thing but stacked one on top of the other. And they're filled with stars, these uh, spherical or cylindrical compressed composition which is going to produce the effect in the sky. That's uh, manufacturing in China, absolutely horrendous. You have a fire there and it spreads throughout everything and, and sadly still there are lots and lots of deaths in China from manufacturing because they just don't have the sort of control that we have. On the other hand, they're drying things out of doors. Well, we might have got away with it this summer, but generally drying things out of doors in the UK is not a great idea. And there's a 48-inch diameter shell. Now, instead of having stars around the inside circumference, that has smaller shells around the circumference. And actually, it's rather disappointing. Uh, I, have a, well, I had a wonderful piece of video lighting of a 24-inch shell in which the guy actually lights it by hand, not electrically, <laughs> uh, and then gets onto a motorbike and cycles away. <laughs> uh, when he's heard the bang, he then comes out and sees what's happening. But they're, they're ultimately rather disappointing. That's a, what's called an aqua shell. That's a shell like this, not far out of a mortar, but floated onto the surface of the water on an expanded polystyrene float. And there's, the same is going on underneath. You can get an idea of the scale From these boats in the foreground here. Huge thing, very very impressive. We have to think how high these things are going to go, where they're going to come back down again, what happens if they fail and we use uh, not highly sophisticated but perfectly adequate bits of software that was developed by myself and an Australian to model these things and that's the critical thing with many of the big shows now, knowing what the risks are, where things will land if they go right and sadly where things could land if they go wrong, and then making the decision what is or is not safe to fire. Uh, So we use it for modelling of that sort of event, where we've got shells at different levels. So let's turn all these fireworks we've got into displays. Well, I'll just whip through a few of the ones we've done recently. Uh, So Plymouth. Uh, Plymouth is a competition held uh, middle of August every year, six shows over two nights. If you're interested in fireworks, it's the place to go in the UK because you see six of the best companies competing with one another for the championship and they're really putting the effort in to both be novel uh, and dramatic. It's done on a hard surface which creates a few problems for us in rigging, but it's a wonderful place. If you know Plymouth there's a a breakwater well out to sea, but there's actually a little smaller breakwater uh, just off the hoe which was used for uh, flying boats and it's that which we fire off. So it's completely secure, nobody can get access to it, and in essence you've got people 360 degrees around you watching the show over water. And water's great because it then gives all the reflections that you see. These are some of the bigger mortars, up to 12 inches in diameter, so that shell that's going around is the biggest shell that's fired in the the show, but probably only one or two of them. That, That shell, if it were real, would cost in the region of 300 pounds so you don't want to use too many of them. And that's the effect. So you can see lower-level candles, higher-level shells. or uh, these are blinker stars with the water reflection and everything else. Uh, and there's, there's the modern pattern use of, of very precise firing to get chases and, and geometrical effects, something that we haven't been able to do until we have the very sophisticated electronic systems that we have now. Hong Kong. uh, This was the handover show in 1997, which I designed and and rigged. You can see the number of tubes that are there. There was about 18 tons explosive weight of fireworks being fired, and it rained and it rained and it rained. (laughs) Um, 17 inches of rain we had during the setting up phase of that show. But you cover it up. If you've ever been to Hong Kong, the whole of Hong Kong is covered with this red, white, and blue plastic. Uh, We put on the mortars, tin foil to protect them from sparks, clear plastic to keep the bulk of the water off, and then this red, white and blue plastic over the top and you fire straight through it. They're so powerful, it just punches holes in that and then doesn't affect the next one. So it is copable with, but 17 inches of rain, let me tell you, is not a very nice experience trying to set up fireworks. Uh, Again, the crew and, and and a younger me once... Uh, And that's the result. And those are three 12-inch shells being fired together. We fired 67 12-inch shells in that show. And I don't think that year we fired more than about six in the whole of the rest of the UK. Uh, And again, you can get an idea of the scale, lower level and higher level shells. And this one just proves it really was Hong Kong, if you don't believe me. (laughs) And you can see the cloud over the buildings. It, It rained five inches during the show itself rain isn't actually a big problem to us You know, as I said we can just fire through things wind is a much bigger problem because it's going to take the debris hopefully with the prevailing wind in a direction that you've predicted and away from people uh, but you always have to cope, um, cope with what might be the worst case when it's blowing towards people and then you reduce the size of the show this was uh, VJ Day on the Thames um, 50th anniversary I feel a bit sorry for this guy Uh, he went and took pictures, there were eight barges four there you can see and actually four this side and he took two pictures and all the smoke covered him completely and he didn't manage to take another picture in the show Uh, and that one is at HMS Belfast and you can now get an idea of the scale and the constraints that the river puts on us actually the Thames is a dreadful place to do shows because it's relatively narrow and the viewing angles for people along the banks of the Thames are not great Uh, Malta it's a little bit more cavalier, shall we say. <laughs> this, was, this was some work I did with the BBC. I love this picture because this, this guy runs up with this shell on his shoulders, having picked it out of a van at the back here. This guy drops it into the mortar, again, carefully positioning himself so that if anything goes wrong, at least it's quick. And this little guy here has a cigarette behind his ear and he runs up. <laughs> And he lights the shell and then he disappears away again. And they reload shell after shell after shell during the show. As opposed to, if you saw the Hong Kong ones, we basically have one mortar per shell. So everything is pre-rigged and set up. Uh, so there are, the, there are the tubes, and you know, <laughs> keep them safe by putting a bit of rock on the top of them, why not? <coughs> They're also a bit cavalier with other things. These are flight rockets, these are little tiny rockets. Same same way, way of working, but you only actually light one in the middle here, and the fire from one lights all the rest, and they spew out in an enormous cone of effect. Um, I like, and use this slide to demonstrate, the token use of sandbags thrown around the site. <laughs> uh, this is Athens, 2004, uh, on the Olympic stadium. Um, you, you know Athens had a bad reputation that everything was over, over budget and late. Where we were firing the, fu- the fireworks from outside the stadium started on the plans as white marble, which was not great, I didn't think. Luckily, by the time the show happened, the plans had changed and the reality had changed from white marble to compacted dirt. And <laughs> that suited me a whole lot better. Um, interesting stadium uh, with these enormous arches... Uh, and as I say, we get to go to some extraordinary places, crawling up through these arches and looking down through nine-inch holes in them at the stadium beneath was, was really quite something. Not if you had a bad head for heights. Uh, and that's the stadium again. And I'll just show you this little bit of video. This ha- actually hasn't got any fireworks in it, but it's, it's an, uh, uh, an interesting piece of video. A time-lapse of the time from the opening ceremony through to the end of the closing ceremony. We've had the stadium for weeks setting up for the opening ceremony and here's the show flooded with water big hole in the middle where the lake was drained Um, so this is the opening ceremony i know it's heresy but the athletes are the thing people that cause me the biggest problems because they're always in the wrong place so end of the show everybody disappears now we've got to turn it into an athletic stadium in three days So as you watch these ants crawling over this this scene here, you'll see in a moment turf arriving over here, and it's turf from a mirror of the stadium outside, already pre-mown. So we are laying them like a big jigsaw puzzle. So in a sec you'll see that. So now it's when the, when the turf start coming in and then they get start being laid over here and if you watch closely you'll see as I say that they come in pre-mown. Just begin to see it now, in circles. <laughs> so that's turning the stadium from an opening ceremony stadium, should say we had weeks and weeks and weeks to prepare for, to an athletic stadium in around three, four days. Uh, and then we have something trivial called the Olympic Games in the middle of it. And we end up with the closing ceremony. But the closing ceremony. Occurs basically uh, a day and a half after the end of the athletics. So you don't take the grass up, you just cover it with sheets of 8 before plywood. And it's really rather sad, that stadium is still more or less in the state we left it at the closing ceremony, still with the hole in the middle uh, for where the water flowed out for draining the lake. Uh, This is the artistic director's idea of something clever, so these are wheat fields that have to be harvested by the performers. So that's, that's Olympics opening to closing. Nowadays, the trend obviously is for uh, the Paralympics to follow on immediately after the Olympic Games and in the same stadium, um, and that of course introduces a whole new set of problems for us for rigging that part of the event. Um, so, move on for some other. Thank you, Tim. Uh, I see I can misspelt that rather badly at the top there. <laughs> I I blame that on that being very late last night when I was adding slides to the presentation, I apologise. So yeah, we do get to work in some strange places. This is on the roof of the Melbourne Cricket Ground, which is an entirely circular stadium whose roof is made of glass. Not ideal. Um, What was interesting was we did an awful lot of work on the risk management of this event and calculated that seven pieces of debris would fall into the stadium from everything that was fired on the roof and outside... But by careful choice of the material, it wouldn't do anybody any real damage. We could work out what the area people were occupying, both athletes, performers, and the audience, what their, angle, what their area was that they were subtending to the sky, what their eyes were. Uh, and we went slightly worried to the Melbourne government and said seven people could get debris full on them. And they said, sounds pretty good to us. <laughs> If you've got a hundred and something thousand people there, seven people being hit isn't a big issue. Funnily enough, London 2012 didn't take quite the same attitude as you can imagine. Um, This is a modern firing system, nearly all computerised. It's great, it produces incredible precision, it allows us to do things that we've never been able to do before. But sometimes it fails my ACID test, which is will it work in a wet field in November? And there's a lot to be said for some of the old-fashioned ways. So this is, this is the MCG firing fireworks off the roof. Uh, this is looking down the Yarra River, fireworks leading into the stadium and fired off the roofs of, of buildings around it. And this was a particular challenge to us, which were uh, performers on roller skates with fireworks on their back um, doing all sorts of things in the middle of the stadium. Uh, and the worry was... These, these things burnt 45 seconds. Once you'd lit them, they were going to keep burning 45 seconds. And what happened if they fell over here to these people who were the athletes? Not a great idea to burn an athlete at the opening ceremony of a <laughs> Commonwealth Games. Uh, but again, by very you know, careful uh, modelling, careful uh, precautions, we, we, we uh, not only got away with it, but it set the trend for all sorts of things later. London New Year's Eve. well, London New Year's Eve on the eye is a really rather peculiar event in so much that we only get occupancy of the eye from 4 o'clock on New Year's Eve because for every hour that the eye is not taking paying customers it's costing them 25 grand. So they want us on as late as possible. That's not to say we can't do some pre-rigging of non-live material but all the live material has to go on as I say from 4 o'clock. Uh, and then we use barges, uh, finding things from barges to mirror the eye, the capsules around the eye, are all lit in colour as well, very spectacular, and has really uh, captured the imagination in London. uh, It was subject to a Freedom of Information Act request, so I can tell you the numbers, whereas I can't for others. The total show now costs £1.8 million, of which £1.5 million is on stewarding, barriers, police, everything else. Only £300,000 is on the display itself. And I sort of feel once you get above 50% being infrastructure, something's gone a bit wrong somewhere. But that's the world we live in. So a couple more pictures. Uh, These are these long-burning gold effects, palm effects. Uh, London 2012, last year, obviously, similar sort of thing to to, uh, Melbourne in a way in that there was a river, the stadium. Uh, I worked on that for some long time and then uh, didn't work during the event itself for one reason or another. Uh, very dramatic effects, you probably remember that one from the the rings lifting into the sky which were the gold gerbs exactly as we've seen here Uh, firing comets off the roof of the stadium a lot of modelling going on to see where they would go, what would happen if there was a failure Uh, there's firing uh, silver comets and and red off the top of the stadium chasing around, all sorts of things that were not possible until these computerised firing systems were available Uh, and uh, another one Uh, Be wary of CGI. Uh, If you remember uh, uh, Beijing Olympics 2008, uh, there was a slight scandal when it was proved that they uh, had CGI fireworks as well as the real fireworks. The reason I show it to you is because I won more respect from my son than I've ever won before or since, because I took one look at it during the ceremony and said, they're false. No, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. And (laughs) within a day or so, it was proved that they were. Uh, computer graphics. Um, what's going to happen in the future? Well, novel compositions based on high nitrogen organic chemistry. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking forward to that. But they will be expensive. Uh, but they, have, they get rid of some of the problems we have with, for instance, potassium perchlorate. Perchlorates are a mimic for the iodide ion and can affect the thyroid gland. So there's a move away from some of the inorganic salts. Less environmental effects, more precision, more sophisticated firing systems, allowing us to do more, more precisely, and sadly, more regulation. So, just a few people to thank uh, Jack Morton Events, Accolade Events, uh, production companies for these enormous shows, and I work very closely with both of those all around the world. Group F, Kim Bolton, and Howard's were the people who staged those big shows with me acting as consultants. And some of the video that I've put in today, because we can't demonstrate it up, has come from a company in the States called Paralabs. Uh, thank you for listening. There's a load of links. Uh, I'm very happy in a moment to take any questions you have or go and have a look at some of those. Even happy for you to contact me if you jot it down on my email address. Uh, but use email because I'm not very often at home. I'm somewhere else in the world setting up an event. And I just thought I'd show you if you haven't. Oh. Now look, it's worked all the way through. <laughs> technology here we go if you hadn't seen it this is just to take us out is he's going to hang here we go London New Year's Eve using the eye uh, and in this particular year we also used Big Ben and getting fireworks to fire off Big Ben you can imagine is, is not easy particularly because at the bottom of the steps up to Big Ben there's a big plaque which says Guy Fawkes was hung, drawn and quartered near here. <laughs> so I'll just let that run. Thank you very much. Um, I think we're more or less on time. Very happy to take questions. I'd quite like my big 12-inch shell bow. Bar- oh, Tim, you've put it back. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much.